the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. I had a friend when I was growing up in um, high school days and was involved with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and this guy was a great believer, really had a heart for the Lord, uh, was found faithfully in church on every Sunday, uh, had a voracious uh, desire and appetite for the Word. Every time there was a prayer opportunity, a prayer meeting, something of that sort, he was there. He was just one of those really faithful guys. And yet, in the entire time that I knew him, I recognized that this guy dealt with a degree of shame. Now, in his case, the shame wasn't necessarily because of anything that he had done or failed to do. But, you see, he came from a household where his mother had died years before when he was younger, leaving the surviving parent, his father, with himself, a younger brother, a younger sister. Uh, Dad was kind of a rough-and-tumble kind of character, uh, had been a truck driver, inconsistent when it came to work, so... The house wasn't in a very nice neighborhood. The lawns were never well kept. The house was never well maintained. The kids were never well dressed nor never well fed. Well, they were all decent human beings. There always seemed to be kind of this cloud of shame that this friend of mine carried, even as a believer, uh, because he couldn't invite people over to his home. He felt embarrassed at times because his father, being kind of the rough-and-tumble guy, would use uh, foul language and things of that sort, so there was a degree of embarrassment. And um, I always wondered, boy, what kind of a cross is that for us to bear as believers when sometimes we deal with the the pain of worthlessness or rejection or just downright shame? Well, my guest tonight has written a book that tackles this very issue, uh, down through the years, he's authored quite a number of best-selling books, uh, including When People Are Big and God is Small, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, Depression, Stubborn Darkness, many others, including his latest book entitled simply Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. And Ed Welsh, great to have you on the program tonight. Craig, yeah, great to be with you, too. I really, uh, really enjoy thinking about this particular topic, and um, I'm looking forward to our time together. You mentioned to our listeners that you are a licensed uh, psychologist and faculty member of the um, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, a highly respected organization, and you've, you've tackled an issue here that kind of kind of rides down below the surface, I think, in the lives of a lot of believers for different reasons. Now, I shared at my opening remarks the, the shame, the sense of shame that this friend of mine had for so long that sent that kind of foreboding sense of, 
of, of, of guilt about this and never knowing quite what to do. I mean, is this something that we need to maybe right out the gate differentiate between guilt and shame or the sense that we'll get under some some circumstances of conviction of the Holy Spirit? Kind of delineate that for us, if yeah, you would. I, I think that's an important one, but let me go, let me go back a little bit. You're... you're you're wrestling with the question, how, how big is this issue? And, and if we go to Scripture, it, it, it seems to advertise shame is, in, in many ways, the, the premier human struggle. You know, so, you know, you have Genesis. They were naked and without shame. Well, that's just, you know, it's like, a, it's like a, the, the story being given away right at the beginning, where, you know, it's setting us up to see, okay, then they were naked and with shame. And, and really, the entire Bible becomes... A, a, wrestling with this question, what do I do with this sense of shame? So I, I think you're, you're saying something very, very important at the outset with your illustration. Well, here's a guy who was struggling with it, but if, if Scripture is true, what we'd expect is that we're going to find touches of this in every single person. And, and some of those words you use to describe shame, they, boy, I would imagine just about every American would say them. I feel like a failure sometimes. I feel worthless. Who, haven't, who hasn't said that? Um, I feel unlovable. Uh, and, but here's, here's the sort of the twist that shame gives unlovable. Uh, I'm unlovable, but other people aren't. You know, other people are lovable, but I'm not lovable. There's something, there's something especially not quite right about me. That's, mm. un, it's under those experiences that we find this, this thing that Scripture calls shame. And as you point out, this is something that we really have struggled with since the beginning of mankind. I mean, we, we've got that illustration very early in the garden uh, with the creation of mankind. There he was, there she was in our, in our uh, complete glory. Uh, there was never any sense of guilt or shame. Uh, until then, of course, uh, of the eating of the knowledge of the tree of, of good and evil. And suddenly, man in his nakedness went from that state of being without shame to suddenly burdened down with shame. And this is something that, of course, is, has followed us to one degree or another ever since. And, and if, we, if we follow the, the storyline in those first chapters of Genesis, we find this, this very concise picture of shame. And it seems to revolve around a triad of three things. Well, first of all, you feel naked, obviously. You, you feel exposed. You feel like you are being seen. Somebody, others can see you, and you're not quite right. That would be one experience of it. You just feel exposed. Uh, a second is, and you, you find this in the Genesis story, you feel like an outcast. You feel like you don't belong anymore. And I would say that that's, in many ways, that's really the key experience. There's something about you that you don't fit in. And I can remember one, uh, this, this, this moment I had in high school where, of course, I, like everybody else in high school, felt like I never fit in. But then I'd have these conversations with my friends, and I found... These guys who were, you know, you know great guys who, who just seemed like they had everything, they didn't feel like they fit in. You know, you begin to realize, does anybody feel like they belong? And it's an elusive human experience. The other part of the experience is you feel unclean. There's something dirty about you. And, and Craig, I think that's where that link between guilt and shame can get a little fuzzy, where, okay, you feel dirty, you feel bad. Well, I think, I think many of us have this instinct that if we feel bad, it means we've done something bad, we've done something wrong, and, and we, we tend to look for something to confess. And, and certainly shame can occasionally be 
because we have done something we feel like is so wrong. It's, it's a different kind of sin or a different kind of wrong than other people have committed. And so there's that sense we, you know, well, for example, I, I uh, drove to work today, and I expect if today wasn't like any other day, I rolled through a stop sign or two. And, and is that breaking the law? No, I'm not trying to say I'm proud of it, but, but I'm willing to acknowledge it because I'm, I'm thinking, I'm hoping <laughs> that, that you rolled through a stop sign today too. And, and, and so you're, you're shaking your head and say, yeah, 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 I'm with you, I know, I know what you're talking about. But there, there are other kinds of wrongs that we could talk about where nobody's shaking their head and they're just sort of looking at us. So occasionally, the, the bad that we feel is a result of, of what we've done. We just feel like what we've done is very different and, and more disgraceful than anything anybody else has done. The other, the larger part of shame, which you've already spoken about, is, is we feel bad, we feel unclean, but it's, it, you, can, you can confess all day and it's not going to make any difference. Um, it's because we are associated with things or people that have done unclean things to us. And, and certainly, you know, you, you've mentioned one, just associations with poverty and not having anything. Well, there's the literal sense of feeling worthless and not fitting in. The, the other illustrations that, that probably most of us would immediately think of would be some kind of sexual violation where you have been, it's not what you've done. You feel, obviously, you feel dirty but you can't confess that dirtiness because it's a dirtiness that somebody else has thrown on you. Or somebody who's been divorced, um, the same thing. If they were on the bad end of, div- of divorce where, where the spouse left them, there, there's a sense that there's something wrong with me, there's something bad about me. And it's not because of what they've done, it's because of what has been done to them. So, so shame really is the much larger struggle if, uh, than guilt. Guilt can be one part of shame, but shame is a much, much wider experience. Tackling the topic today as we're joined by a best-selling author, Edward Welsh, a look at Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And we're visiting today with best-selling author Ed Welsh. He is a licensed psychologist and faculty member of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. And uh, amongst the number of titles that he's written down through the years, his latest, Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. Let's um, maybe kind of dive a little bit deeper into this topic, Ed, as we help folks understand sometimes the difference between what maybe can be good shame in letting us know, and maybe I'm not using the right phraseology here, but letting us know that there's something amiss in our lives that we need to address versus the kind of shame that's kind of brought upon us typically by circumstances that oftentimes are either outside of our control or, or, or had nothing to do with our own actions. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I guess I guess I tend to think about it this way. I think of of guilt has a bit more benefit than shame. <laughs> where where guilt, you know, our conscience can remind us, hey, I did wrong, and it's time for confession. Shame is it, it tends to be much more renegade, and and I, I 
I, I don't find really that often in Scripture. Occasionally you find it, um, but, but very infrequently do you find in Scripture the encouragement for people to experience shame. There were times where Israel was just completely hard-hearted, and, and, and the Lord essentially says, shame on you. Uh, you, you, have, you have no shame anymore. But, but when, when, when I see the Lord dealing with individual people, especially when we race up to the New Testament and see Jesus in action, all we see is just this incredible compassion for those who wrestle with shame. So, so I, I think the Scripture is much more interested in that question, okay, here's this, here's this soul-deadening struggle that human beings can have. What is the way through it? Working through that is is a process, isn't it? And it's a process that can be different for everybody. And and I would imagine a lot of it comes down to flipping the the perspective. In other words, oftentimes that shame is based on how we perceive others and how they perceive us. Do we then have to kind of move beyond that to begin to see the way God perceives us? Yeah, uh, boy, absolutely. I, I think you, you just you just hit hit on something very important that that. That you know, I want to learn of these things as we're speaking as well, and and as, as we understand the way God works, it's not oh, oh all of a sudden in a half hour we're going to be free of shame. It's it's what we're you know what we're looking for is just maybe just a little glimmer, you know, just something that 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 approximates hope, okay? and just something that surprises us a little bit, where we say, oh, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting. You, our God, the Holy God, to have this kind of concern for for outcasts. That, that's what we're looking for. Just in, a, in one sense, to be intrigued by a God who doesn't who doesn't conform to our expectations. And and one of the things you said when you talked about the phone lines being down is, is probably relevant to right now too. Where in a sense, what, what the Lord says, I think, is 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 listen. Okay, just just sit down and and listen. And which is so unusual for that that's surprising in and of itself for people who wrestle with shame they feel like they have to do something they have to wash themselves more they have to they have to somehow be a fail a, a success before they're able to to be able to appear before God and other people but but what you have in scripture is a god who says listen listen to listen to stories of people who experience shame and watch watch my affection for them and and then story after story in Scripture, that's that's what we receive. You know, what struck me so interesting, going back to my, my central example earlier on of this friend of mine who had grown up in, you know, less than ideal circumstances, I, I always took note of the fact, Ed, that here was someone who, because he was not a person of, of great wealth or of status, had a very easy time in showing a sense of compassion toward others. Uh, here was someone who would volunteer during the holidays at a soup kitchen to help feed the needy during Thanksgiving and give, giving and Christmas and so forth, um, who, even though he had limited means, uh, was someone who tithed frequently, was was eager to do something to help somebody else mm. out who was in need. His His own life experience gave him the ability to see need in others, and yet... When he turned that mirror on himself, yep. he saw someone that was a loser, who was worthless, who didn't feel comfortable going to certain events because he couldn't dress as nice as the others. It's yeah, amazing how it, there was a degree it. to which the shame taught him things about others that enabled him to become more understanding, more caring, more compassionate, and yet 
as much as it benefited him to a degree in that sense, mm-hmm. never benefited his own viewpoint of himself. But it's a, it's a good starting point, what you're saying, where, where, where people who struggle with shame, you know, it, maybe we could put it this way, an outcast can recognize other outcasts. Mm, okay. they, they have keen eyes for other outcasts. And, and, and that seems to be the story of the New Testament, where here comes, here comes the king, and, and you know, he's, you know, his birth is announced with angels and prophecies, but, but if you're an outcast and you start reading through the very beginning of the New Testament, what you say is, hold it, here's, I recognize this guy, okay? He doesn't belong either. He's on the outs as well. Here's a per. I recognize him. Is it possible that he might even recognize me? And, and, and then the, the, the greatest indignity, they go down to Egypt. It's, you know, you know, Egypt is just a horrifying thing for a Jew. That's, you know, that's where they were enslaved. And, and so he spends a, a couple early years in Egypt. You know, episode after episode, you look at, you look at the Messiah, and, and, and an outcast is able to spot Jesus better than anybody else because he is like them. And then, then, when, you, then when you watch his ministry... Takes shape. It's it, it's the most peculiar thing. I mean, if you want to have a reputation, you go among the movers and the shakers and the influencers, and 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 Jesus was immediately on the outs, and he was on the outs with the mover and shakers because here you, know, you remember that original complaint. Hey, he can't be one of us because he eats with sinners mm-hmm. and and tax collectors. He he eats with people who are on the outs. He eats with the unclean, which makes him unclean himself. And, and that was that was the original rap against Jesus that he associates himself with the outcast and and so you know to to use your friend as the illustration what we're you know what we're doing is okay you got it you recognize another outcast so watch him watch you know watch him walk through life now now notice this do you see that that outcast Jesus Christ he makes a beeline toward you okay and and most people who really wrestle with shame is sort of their full-time job. They they don't believe it. And and I think, well, you know, the, the scripture goes on and says, well, let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more. But at some point, I think those who wrestle wrestle with shame, they they're going to have to do something. So in in a sense, the Lord says, hear the stories, just listen. And then He says, okay, now respond. And and the response can be as simple as. Amen. Okay, Lord, I believe. <laughs> I believe you even pursue me as an outcast. I believe that you, and here's, here's a term that Scripture uses, you turn your face to me. And when somebody turns their face to you, it's this, it's this sign that you belong to them. It's a sign of their pleasure and their goodwill toward you. At some point, those who wrestle with shame, they're going to have to not only hear these beautiful words, but they're going to have to say, yes, I believe them. I believe that they're words that, that, that the Lord says to me. We're so comfortable sometimes living in kind of that pain because it's something that's very familiar, that sense of worthlessness and inferiority or living with rejection, humiliation, failure. And certainly a lot of people these days, in light of what's transpired in the economy, uh, people who have worked hard at their career um, and achieved a modicum of success and then suddenly, because of no fault of their own, lost a job, lost a home, have not been able to regain employment and they're walking around with that sense of shame. 
Let's talk about that angle when we come back. And turning about perspective on this topic, uh, seeing this as God sees us, seeing ourselves as God sees us. Shame interrupted. Best-selling author Edward Welch with us today. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've got best-selling author with us today, Ed Welsh. His latest book is called Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. Got a number of best-selling books to his credit. He also serves as a licensed psychologist and faculty member at the notable Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Been dealing with this topic, and you know, if you're someone who walks around, who lives with, who is an intimate of shame, that sense of rejection and worthlessness and weakness, humiliation, failure. And boy, certainly that that sense of failure, I think, is something that so many people these days, Ed, in the wake of what's been going on with the economic decline, have really had to struggle with. What kind of advice, what kind of insight can you offer to somebody who's who's walking around with that kind of shame, lost the job, lost the house, they feel like they're failure at caring for their family, and yet what do they do? Uh, there's... There's nothing unique to this particular era in how we measure who we are by how much we make. And 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 I don't live in the Bay Area, but but I would think that it would be only be more obvious in in the Bay Area. There's nothing unique to that because I think you found the same thing in the New Testament. And because the you know the poor they were they were the ones who were literally were worthless. Um, and you know that's that's you know, a prominent way we measure our worth. What's our income? What's the status of our job? And and, and so I think there there are a couple of things that that Scripture does. What the, the Jesus does. The the first thing is he says, hey, this is not a mirage. It's not simply you love money so much and you love your reputation. Uh, Jesus is is acknowledging that poverty and and financial difficulties are truly hard thing. And the hard things that, that 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 can be experienced shamefully before the community, and and then you keep your eyes open in the scripture, and and so here, Matthew chapter five, for example, it's you know one of one of the the early discourses that that we have from Jesus, and here's how it starts: <laughs> you know, Blessed are the poor, mm. blessed are the poor. Now now that's not going to make people out of a job feel really you know real, real nice all of a sudden. But it, it, it should capture our attention just a little bit, <laughs> where once again, it's as, if, it's as if Jesus is aiming for the outcast and the shamed. That's, they are his people. And, and so, so it's very intentional that he starts out the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are the poor. He's, he's showing how things are not the way they seem, that those who are outcast. Are, those are the people of the living God. They are the ones who belong ultimately to the king. And, and what does he say? I think that's the one where he says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom mm-hmm. of heaven. And again, it's you know, like you said earlier, this is a process. Um, and, and nobody's going to go away saying, Oh, this is, okay, great, my shame is all done now, and I, I feel fine about not having work. It, it's, it's one of the just, big um, wedges, though, that we need to address here, is to understand that in this process, ultimately... Um, without regard to what the source might be of our shame, sometimes it's controllable, a lot of times it isn't. 
to mm-hmm. ultimately understand that each and every one of us were bought with a price and that there is much that can be said about that um, that ultimate and enormous Christ, uh, sacrifice that Christ paid for us uh, so that in and through that sacrifice, that, that, that enormous pearl of great price, as Scripture says, uh, we can learn to, to, to see our identity as he sees our identity and be able to shed that sense of shame after a while? I, I think what we're saying is that we, we tend to think that the work of Christ on the cross is for forgiveness of sins in the narrowest sense. But, but you know, here's the problem. You go into the courtroom, and, and the judge says you're, you're not guilty and you're forgiven. You leave the courtroom, and you still feel disgusting. Well, it, you know, in some ways, the, the verdict doesn't make a whole lot of difference. You, feel, you still feel like a disgrace. I, I think what we're, what, we're, what we're moving toward is what happened at the cross is much bigger than we will ever, ever imagine. And in and, and, and that forgiveness of sins, we have been given Christ himself. And... And 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 we and and here's shame is about associations. Are you associated with your poverty? Are you associated with the person who abused you? Uh, are you associated with your sins? Well, what what Jesus does at the cross is he is he snips all those old associations and he says you are you are now associated with me. And and so you know there's that, that wonderful passage in Peter. You are chosen. This is these are all words specifically to those who wrestle with shame. A chosen people, you're chosen, okay? A royal priesthood, you're rich. Uh, a holy nation, you're, 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 you're even more than clean, you're holy. And then that, that, that thing that Peter says, a people belonging to God, a people belonging to God. That's all part of the package of, of the gospel of Christ. The, the gospel is for our guilt, and the gospel is for our shame. Isn't it interesting, too, I think of that passage, the people belonging to God, people that God calls having been set apart. So often we think of ourselves in the negative sense of having been set apart as being an outcast um, and so forth, and yet to understand that there is another type of being set apart, called by his name, paid for by his blood, where now all of a sudden we can understand that that being somebody different than the rest can actually be something very special. It's uh, it, it, uh, it, it's it's amazing the way the scripture uses the same kind of words. Um, yeah, you're set apart. Now it's a set apart like you're okay. You're on the traveling baseball team. <laughs> now you're set apart. You're you're in this elite organization. Now you're set apart where you are absolute. You are the one who is known by name by the king. So. So it's a set apart, but it's a set apart that warms our soul and and says that we you know that here's here, here this seems to be the very hub of scripture where where the Lord says to us in Christ, "I am yours and you are mine. We are pe- people belonging to God. That's what we're set apart for. Ultimately, Ed, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. For those that have been eavesdropping on our conversation this afternoon that say, boy, you guys have really nailed it, you are articulating exactly where I'm at, how do I begin getting on this road to understand that I can go from that sense of being an outsider, an outcast, to understanding what it means to take on the mantle of being set apart in his name? How does that process begin? I, I hate to seem self-aggrandizing and, and, and talk about my own book, but 
but that shame interrupted book is it, it's really looking at it's basically just looking at scripture but looking at it through the question what do i do with my shame and, and just watching these beautiful words unfold so 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 that you know that can be sort of a, a coach a friend if you will just to help people have eyes to see how scripture does speak to shame over and over again and 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 once you once you see it once you're able to see those beautiful words then you don't need the help as much and you can just jump into scripture and see them but going back to i think what you said earlier it's just allow that little little nugget of hope to just settle in okay that that maybe our god says things to our sense of disgrace and worthlessness that is much more than we ever imagined before just to have that hope that's what a great place to start that would be Indeed so. And, and hope is, I think, an, an internal and, incor- and important word uh, that can be a central starting point of our focus. You know, when blame shows up on the doorstep, uh, we're having that sense of shame. Uh, we feel like we're worthless. We've been rejected. We're outcast. Um, to begin to incorporate God's viewpoint on who we are uh, and to begin to see ourselves, not necessarily through how we perceive others see us, but rather how we should understand God sees us is the important difference when it comes to shame interrupted. The new book, by the way, which, as we mentioned before, um, is uh, published by New Growth Press, and uh, you can get more information online at newgrowthpressbookstore.com or through any Bay Area bookstore. And our thanks to best-selling author Ed Welsh for being with us tonight here on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Prayer indeed does change things, as my next guest has found out. He is Dr. David Levy. He practices neurosurgery in Southern California. His articles have been widely published in a variety of neurosurgical journals, and he's an accomplished speaker and a co-author of a brand new book entitled Gray Matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. And Dr. Levy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the program this evening. It's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, I found your, your book and your observations on the power of prayer very encouraging, particularly in a day and age when there, there's so much being bandied about concerning what's happened with uh, health care in America. I got into an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's involved in health care, and there have been some discussion about the fact that uh, more and more he's finding uh, both physicians and hospitals referring to the people that come through their doors as clients, to which I took umbrage and said, you know, uh, you may want to let your colleagues know that we patients don't prefer to be referred to as clients because it just seems to kind of reduce us down to nothing more than somebody who helps bring money and while I understand this is an important part of what needs to be done to, you know, keep the lights on in the hospital and, and to pay, uh, you know, the folks that provide the services that they do to keep us all healthy. Nevertheless, it was encouraging to see the perspective that you share inside the pages of Gray Matter that there are some doctors out there who uh, who still want to have a good bedside manner and who, in fact, uh, don't see us as clients, but rather as patients. That's absolutely right, Craig. Yeah, there are uh, quite a number of doctors, I think, that, that really got into medicine because they care and they want to see uh, not just uh, uh, the patient necessarily physically get better, although that is our 
our goal. That's what we are doing this for. But we also want to see all aspects of health. The physical is just one aspect. There's emotional, relational, and spiritual health. And we want to address all of those. We want to see the patient as a whole person. Has your profession sort of succumbed to much of what we've seen in the scientific community in, in the last hundred years, say, uh, and that is those that would insist that there needs to be a brick wall as much as we've seen a brick wall between science and so-called religion or science and God? Has there been a trend toward that as well within the medical profession where, you know, it's okay if a patient wants to believe in God, but once they enter into the doctor's office, the hospital, the surgery room, uh, we need to leave God outside and never blend the two you know that is that is how I was trained honestly and um, I, I am ashamed to admit there was a time in my career where I um, I just thought the patients were sort of wasting their time wasting my time um, because I believed the surgeon's motto you know heal with steel or you know when in doubt cut it out and some of those uh, <laughs> uh, things uh, we use to just uh, it, 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 it's it it's not all uh, for the patient. We, we have our own agendas that, that it, uh, as we move into medicine. Is there some tendency to maybe, uh, and I know the, the effort and work that needs to go into studying and preparing to become a successful surgeon of any level, certainly at your level, dealing with you know surgery on the brain, neurosurgeon, uh, is not a casual profession by any means. Is there a sense maybe within some within the medical community that, you know, why do we want to enter into praying for a patient or praying with a patient prior to a procedure? I'm the doctor. I'm in charge. I'm handling this, almost sounding as if at a level maybe, while not uh, openly recognized, almost a subconscious sense of, well, I'm not going to bring God into this equation because in my operating room, I am God. You know, that is... That is um I think very correct. Uh, unfortunately, that is how I saw it as well. I, I, I admit that in the book that I, I really didn't want to bring God in because it, it did sort of make things complicated. I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to take the credit for the surgery and things like that. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of time you spend learning these highly technical skills, and so you actually would like credit for those. And um, and so to, to pray or to have someone think it was their prayer that did it instead of you, at some level that's potentially offensive. But, you know, for myself, I realized, you know, after I'd done a technically perfect 11-hour surgery and the patient, you know, died the next day of a blood clot, I, 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 that was one of the things that woke me up to say, wow, I can do perfect surgery, but I don't control the outcome. Mm. And so I think we, we, you know, and if we're honest, then we start looking for, well, well, well what else is it? Well, what's happening here? Well, what about uh, the spiritual aspect of, of this case? Because something's happening. Uh, I did everything right, but, um, but I didn't get the outcome I wanted. Yeah, there, there, there's that having the, to kind of succumb to the realization that there's something bigger than me behind all of this. And your story is an interesting one because you, as you detail inside the pages of Gray Matter, struggled with this idea of to pray or not to pray and what that would mean and kind of going back and forth. And then, you know, a a wonderful, almost serendipitous chapter out of the book entitled Physician Heal Thyself. You go in one day to your own dentist. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us us what happened when when that light came on. Well, I'm sitting in the dentist chair and... um my dentist, I needed to have a filling replaced. He 
draws up his syringe full of Novocaine. And, you know, I, Craig, I've spent a long time in training so that I could... Uh, but I didn't have to be on the receiving end of those needles. So you're a neurosurgeon. I mean, come on. This is this is a minor little dental procedure here, you wimp. Yes, but as, when it comes to injections, remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> <laughs> so I tense up, and my friend sees me. You know, he's trying to hide that needle down below the chair. You know how they Sure, yeah. <laughs> Not quite notice it, yeah. <laughs> so I'm tensing up, and uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he just says a short prayer. He said, you know, God, guide my hands, uh, you know, bless David, something like that. And then I felt this peace come over me. It was, it was just an unusual, I mean, the needle stick still hurt a bit, but it wasn't the same level of apprehension. It wasn't the same anxiety level. And on my way home that day, I said, you know, I really should be praying for my patients. I really feel like the Lord was speaking to me uh, as I went home. And interesting how your dentist didn't say, now, come on, David, you're a trained, experienced physician. You deal with surgeries significantly more, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and, and risky than this on an every single day. Be a man about it. He could have said any of those things. Yeah. But instead of doing that, he chose to do something very, very different. He, he, he recognized, number one, his own need for God and the role that the Lord plays in this process, which ironically, as you point out, suddenly gave you a greater sense of, of comfort. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so when I went to, to I, I basically said, well, wow, that, you know, that's, as good as Valium. I mean, I should be giving people this. You know, why, why am I not at least asking them, not pushing it on them? But I think it's also very important to, you know, to ask. But I tell you what, that first time I decided to pray, I was terrified. I walked up the stairs, my heart was pounding, uh, and of course, my busy preoperative area in the hospital was much busier than this dentist's office, where it was just just he and I. There wasn't even a, a hygienist at that point, and. Um, so I decide to pray with my patient of the day, and I walk up to her bed, and everything seems fine. She's got her two daughters there, but there's a nurse. There's a nurse, and there's no way I'm going to pray in front of a nurse. I mean, this, this I've decided, has got to be a top-secret situation. I don't want anyone to see me actually offer to pray with someone unless they think I'm, you know, one of those nuts or something. Of course, you're a senior medical staff. You could have just kicked her out of the room. <laughs> I, I do right, but I was I was trying to be sort of very smooth about everything uh, while I'm introducing prayer for the first time, and so I'm trying to outlast her, and I'm waiting, and finally I you know say okay I'll have to pray another day, and I I back up to the nurses station. Uh, I didn't leave. I decided you know what I'm not going to give up. Maybe if I wait a few minutes, and so you know how we do. We pretend to I've got a page, and I pretended to be on the telephone, ah. you know. <laughs> So I wouldn't look too suspicious. It's, I mean, honestly, Craig, it was as if I were going to, you know, casing her room like I was going to commit a crime or something. I'm just sort of looking uh, like I was going to steal the woman's purse. I'm just waiting for the nurse to leave. Finally, finally she leaves. And I, I scurry up, and just before I get to the bed, here comes the anesthesiologist. I turn right back around. <laughs> there was no way I was going to pray in front of another doctor. And, and so I waited a little longer. Finally, they left, and I went up to her bedside, and before anyone else could come, and I said, uh, Mrs. Jones, you know, would you mind if, if I said a prayer with you for your surgery? And she looked at her daughters, and they looked at her, and 
shrugged their shoulders and said, fine. So I, um, I, put, I, I was thinking about putting my hand on her shoulder, but neurosurgeons are not very touchy-feely. We, we generally don't touch people unless they're under general anesthesia. They, uh, they have a covered with that blue drape, and then we, we use a scalpel. So, uh, but, I, but that's what had been done to me. This, my dentist friend had put his hand on my shoulder, and so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, uh, her daughters moved in, they bowed their heads, and I just said, uh, God, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain, and you can help me to fix them. And I just asked for skill and for wisdom in this case and for success. In Jesus' name, amen. I looked up. She was weeping. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Her two daughters are, are wiping tears away from their eyes. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what, what have I done? You know, what, what, what is this power? And, you know, so I did what any surgeon would do at that point. I patted her on the arm, and I left it for the nurse to deal with. <laughs> and here she came with her Kleenexes, handing them out. And I hit the automatic door button and opened those doors and, and went off uh, to my surgery, which, uh, honestly, I had more joy in that surgery than I have ever had in my practice before. Because I, the, the patient's looked to me as if I'm God, but for the first time in my life, I had said, look, I'm not God. I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not God. But I would be willing to talk to him with you, if that's what you'd like. Well, and the amazing thing about all of this, too, is that sense that, you know, as much as we as the uh, patients uh, want to know that you know what you're doing, we also want to know that you care, and that's one of the real keys here. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. David Levy is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, The Experience of a Neurosurgeon Discovering the Power of Prayer, One Patient at a Time, the new book called Gray Matter. A brief time out, back with some closing thoughts from Dr. Levy as this edition of Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 